question is the issue. It's a sovereign God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's a great thing to hear. Let, let me pray and we'll get into the message for today. Lord, thanks for bringing uh, Doug into your family and your kingdom, making him your servant and his family. And we just thank you so much for that. And Lord, as we look around and see your work in the lives of those around us, it just gives great joy. And it just reminds us of your great love, your great mercy and grace. Uh, thinking of Romans uh, this morning, that faith has introduced us to a life of your grace. And we just thank you so much for that. We ask your blessing on our time in the word this morning that we see more of Christ. We understand more of truth and the realities you've called us to know and embrace and live out. In Jesus' name, amen. And Acts 26 uh, tells the story of Paul, the Apostle Paul, before the Roman governor Festus. And this is sort of at a point where chapter 22 of Acts, he'd been arrested in Jerusalem. You know, he's causing a disturbance at the Temple Mount. And one thing led to another. He was taken to Caesarea there on the Jewish coast. And he'd represented himself as defense to Felix, the Roman governor who left him there. Festus comes along. Festus is going to send him to Rome. And he's got to write something about Paul to the Roman emperor. And while he's there... He has royal guests in the grandchildren of Herod the Great, King Agrippa II, and his sister Bernice. So Paul's thrilled for the opportunity to give his testimony. That's what he was doing, giving his testimony to that august group. And so he told about his days of persecuting those in the faith and Jesus' appearance to him on the road to Damascus and calling him as his representative to the Gentiles, in which in part he said, that he would tell Gentiles to repent of their sins and then that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus or made holy by faith in Jesus. Well, the crowd is listening up to that point and Festus has just had enough. So he says at verse 24, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You've lost it. This was Paul's response. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. The things I'm saying, they're true and they're rational, they're logical. You can count on them. I'm not out of my mind. Festus hears Paul and says, you're, you're speaking fairy tales, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't line up with reality and rationality. Others, of course, heard Paul repented and followed Christ. We live in an interesting day, do we not? There's lots and lots going on. And there's competing views for what does a life of success look like on the earth today? And especially what happens after you die? You know, like Doug, even if you say, I'm going to live life on my own terms, when you die, you're not on your own terms anymore. What, what's happening? What do we make of claims to both life and death? We're in the sixth message in the Be Diligent series working through 2 Peter again this morning, to catch up briefly. Remember in chapter 1, we heard that God's great work in us was transforming former sinners, not only into saints, but into the very image of Christ. And so Peter was talking about add to your faith things like knowledge and virtue and self-control. And there were eight qualities that we said represented what Christ's life in you and I looked like. And then he went on in the end of chapter 1 to say that the 
testimony of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, like Paul's words, were true and rational and that they could be counted on. And specifically there, he said, Jesus' transfiguration on a mountaintop in which the apostles saw him in glory was a precursor and a promise that Jesus would come again in glory as he had said. And that was against what some other false teachers were saying. When we got into chapter 2, he said, now in contrast to the true, rational, dependable testimony of the Scriptures, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, he said there are false teachers that are coming along, pseudo-teachers. They don't represent God, though they claim to. And so last week, that's what we looked at. Who these guys are, what they were like. We cut chapter 2, if you noticed last week, kind of in half because we cut out the center. And we're going to take the center verses this morning, verses 3, actually the second half of verse 3 through verse 10, because Paul, or Peter in that section is talking about God's judgment on these false teachers and those like them. I want to give a few a few warnings, notes, caveats before I start. I'm going to read a lot of text again this morning, so that requires a little bit more of you than perhaps normally. Also, this is a, a deadly serious subject. When you're talking about the judgment of God on sin and God's eternal judgment on sinners, it's a heavy, heavy topic. And that is what we're talking about this morning. And also, as you, as you hear the text, as you read through, I'll be reading from the ESV, 2 Peter 2, 3-10. through 10. Peter is, is being very conscientious about the argument he's making. So you'll notice Peter's going to say if four times. And when you read if here, you could translate that, you could say since. Peter's not saying something might have been like if something happens or if it really happened. He's saying something really did happen since something happened. Four times he says that. Verse 9, he'll get to the then. He's making an if-then argument. Okay, so four of those, we'll point those out as we go through. And Peter's talking about God's judgment on the ungodly and God's deliverance and salvation of the godly. And just to be clear, uh, we are not religious if you say in this context, the godly are godly through faith in Jesus Christ. The godly aren't religious people who go to church, okay? We want to make sure we're on the same page. The godly are those who have the righteousness of Christ through faith. The ungodly are those who don't, like the false teachers, okay? So keep that in mind. We're not promoting any form of religion. We're promoting faith in Christ and the fruits of faith in Christ. So 2 Peter 2, verse 3, starting there in the middle. So he's getting back. He's referring to the false teachers he's been describing. And he says this, their condemnation, God's condemnation on the false teachers from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 4, this is the first if. For if or since God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Second time, verse 5, If, since he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Third time, if, if or since by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 
Verse 7, here it is again. And if or since he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Here's the conclusion. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And let me go on. These may or may not be on your study sheet, but verse 12 follows this up in part where verse 10 says God's judgment, especially on the lust of defiling passions. Verse 12 says, these, these false teachers, like creatures of instinct. You remember we said last time that they're debasing themselves, that they become more animal than saintly. They still physically bear the image of God, but they've debased themselves to be more animal than human. So verse 12 says, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. Verse 13, they're going to suffer wrong as the wages for their wrongdoing. In verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So that's the text. So Peter's making a logical, rational argument. God's acted in certain ways in the past. You can count on God acting in certain and particular ways in the future as well. Peter gives us three examples of God's past judgment on sin to show the certainty of a final and conclusive judgment. So if you look at verse 4, that's the first of the three negative examples. Verse 4 talks about angels. Peter says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Remember we said 2 Peter 2 and Jude are are very much alike. Jude verse 6 says that same thought this way. Angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Both of them are very clear that there's a group of angels that have been, past tense, and are currently in some form of holding tank. Uh, The ESV says they're committed into hell. Um, In my view, that's a little unfortunate. The Greek term there is Tartarus. Tartarus. This is the only time in the New Testament this Greek term is used, Tartarus. A temporary holding cell as they wait final future judgment. Albert Barnes says this about that term. The word here used occurs nowhere else in the New Testament, though it's common in the classical writers. So the term was common in Greek writings. In Greek mythology, it was the lower part or abyss of Hades where the shades, we would say the spirits, of the wicked were supposed to be imprisoned and tormented and answered to the Jewish word Gehenna. So in the Greek thought, it's a deep pit and it's gloomy and it's dark and that's the word that Peter is using. Related to Gehenna, that for them Tartarus was like the Jewish word Gehenna. Gehenna comes from the name of the valley on the south and southeast side of the hill of Jerusalem. So it's the valley that's called Hinnom. And the valley of Hinnom means the valley of lamentation. So this valley south of Jerusalem was the place where they had the statues of Moloch, Jews did, in which they burned their babies to death on those statues. And that's where they did it, in the valley of Hinnom. 
And so that was such an affront to Jews after those days that the Valley of Hinnom became the trash pile. It's where everything unclean went. And you could picture this in your mind. You know, if you're a farmer today and you take your trash out to the back 40 and you've got your pit in the back of your property and you put it on fire. And that's the thought of the valley because what they would do is the trash piles would be set on fire. Anything unclean, all the stuff. So the valley of Hinnom was a place where only refuse was put and there was smoke and fire coming from that valley pretty much all the time. That's the imagery that Peter is painting for this place of at least temporary holding where these angels that were once upon a time free to roam about as they wanted, that's where they're constrained now. So Peter's point was, here negatively, there's a group of angels that have been already judged. They're under God's judgment until a final judgment, and the place they're in is not a happy one. So the key point Peter's making is that these guys have already been judged and they're being held to that final judgment. Opinions vary as to who these angels are, and I'm going to give you the mic's quick down and dirty on this. So, Peter appears to be making an argument about God's judgment in history that's chronological in order. So, we'll look next at Noah and the flood, and that would be Genesis 6 through 9. And then he goes to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's Genesis 19. So, if it's a chronological progress Peter's making, then the fall of this group of angels happens before the flood of Noah. Now, related to that, There's an argument by some that the angels that Peter's referring to were those that rebelled against God and whatever Satan's great rebellion was, that these are that group of angels. And you say, well, there's a problem with that because if all of that group was already subject to God's judgment and was contained, they wouldn't be alive on the earth today. Satan wouldn't have free reign and those who fell wouldn't have free reign with him. So this appears to be some subgroup of angels that did rebel with Satan, but have done something else that the rest of those fallen angels did not. Uh, in, if you go back in theology, the, the general or the popular or the most consistent understanding of this group of angels was that they are the sons of God referenced in Genesis 6. Now, this has fallen out of favor. Uh, it's still, frankly, my favorite view because it makes the most sense. It's the most consistent biblically. But pretty much lots of things have fallen out of favor, biblical interpretation since the middle 1800s, uh, higher criticism, Darwinism, a number of things have come in which have tended to make scholars shift away from some views of Scripture that seem a little bit more out there. But in Genesis 6, it says the sons of God came down and they chose the daughters of men and they cohabitated with them and they had children and if you say mike hold on angels are spiritual beings so how could they this is the argument against this view how could they come down and have sex with women and produce uh, children and i say i i don't know and the text doesn't say if this is the correct understanding the text simply does not say but out of that group it says the children were called the nephilim which means they were giants and then it says men of renown which means men with a name these were famous men and we think of fame as success and someone who's popular. That's not necessarily the implication in Scripture. Oh, if you remember Nimrod in Genesis 10 and 11 builds the cities that represent rebellion against God, Nineveh, 
and Babylon, he was called a man of renown, a man with a name. These guys were well known. But that makes sense also because sons of God as a phrase in the book of Job, which is understood to be about the same age as the book of Genesis, sons of God there is clearly angelic or spiritual beings who have free access to God and the counsels of God. You see that Satan being one of them. So that's Mike's best version of what group of angels this is. Now, if you like a different group, that's fine. Peter's point is this. There's a group of angels that God looked down on and said, you've passed a point of no return. I'm not allowing you to do what you're doing any longer. And I have, I have kept you. I've put you in a place of holding where you're not free to be about. And I'm keeping you there under partial judgment until a final future day of judgment comes. That's the thought. If you look at verse 5, he says something similar about the ancient world. So now he's talking about the flood. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Let me read to you just a little bit. This is from Genesis 6, verses 11 through 13, just to get a sense of what we're referring to. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. you get the picture? Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Kind of like the false teachers of Peter's day. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is out of chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. You know the story, the rains fall, the boat lifts, the people drown. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. All mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out, he is God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. I think I heard someone teaching on this recently, maybe even here. Everyone that died in that flood would have died anyway, right? Because they're human and everybody dies. The point here is that they died prematurely. That God cut them off, cut all mankind off besides Noah and his family. Cut all of them off prematurely in this judgment. <clears throat> excuse me. And that they have been, like the angels, we'll get to this in a little bit, they have been in a place of temporary judgment awaiting their final judgment. So Peter's point here is God judged, God judged angels. Now he says God judged humanity in the days of Noah. He cut their lives off prematurely and they also are being held temporarily awaiting a final judgment. Uh, Genesis 6, 5 and eight twenty one say the same thing. Mankind's heart is evil from birth. If you go next to verse 6, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. If God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, by the way, just incidentally, you know, there are stories from the Bible that they just, they never quite go away. Did you happen to see articles in the last two or three days about Sodom and Gomorrah and the scientific archaeologists and scientists who've been studying basically the archaeology and strata around the plains of Jericho? They're just on the north end of the Dead Sea. Uh, historically, the south end of the Dead Sea was understood to be the cities of the plains that God destroyed. There's been one key Christian archaeologist who su suggested no, it was on the north end. And there's been a group of scholars, a, a significant team, studying this for a long time. And they're, they're uh, looking at the burnt uh, ceramic stuff. 
they said they were postulating that a meteor which had, this is probably a science I'm not familiar with, a sky burst, an air burst, a meteor would have come down into space and it would have blown up while still in the air. And so it would have had this radiating, not only explosive power, but heat would have radiated out from this. And they say this suggested was about 1600 B.C. Uh, I have no idea on this. Um, 1600 B.C. is, is frankly not back far enough uh, for this uh, in all likelihood. But this is still in the news. Uh, Genesis 19.13, you remember in Genesis 18, Yahweh himself had shown up looking like a man to Abraham and his family. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he's visiting with two angels that they look like men too, and they have a supper with Abraham, and, and God says you're going to have a baby boy next year one, but he says also I'm, I'm going to judge these cities down here. They have a conversation. The two angelic visitors go to the city of Sodom, and Lot says, guys, you can't stay in the public square because you won't be safe, so come home with me. And the two angelic visitors go home with Lot, and this is what happens. The visitors say to Lot, we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. The Lord Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. Verse 23, <clears throat> Lot had appealed to the angels. By the way, would you guys wait long enough for me and my family to get far enough away? And by the way, there's a little town just down the road called Zoar. And if we get there, that'd be lovely. Would you let us do that? They said, fine, go. So the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Verse 27, and Abram went early in the morning to the place where he'd stood before the Lord, so where they'd had their conversation looking out over the plain. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Think of the valley of Hinnom again. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley. Now here again, Peter's referring to a, a time in the past in which God brought judgment against these cities of the plain in this fiery judgment. Scripture records that both these people were given to gross sexual immorality as well as great pride. By the way, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we tend to think of homosexuality and sexual immorality, which was definitely true, and you know what? I think the United States and the world around us looks quite a bit like Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? Uh, I think it was Billy Graham decades ago said if God didn't judge the United States specifically, but we could say the West or the world, he would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah today. But also there's another element to that that people <clears throat> excuse me, often overlook. In Ezekiel, which is centuries later, God speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is what he says about judging them out of Ezekiel 16, 48 and 49. He said that their sins were great pride, just like the false teachers Peter's writing about. Great pride such that they didn't care about anyone else around them. So sexual immorality coupled with great pride, and I'd say that looks a lot like the world you and I inhabit today. So three examples of past occasions when God demonstrated His judgment against sin. Peter says, and guys, this goes back to chapter 1. Peter says, Jesus appeared in glory on the mountain. You can count He's going to appear in glory in the future. This says, God judged sin in the past and He's kept those sinners under judgment until the final judgment. You can count on the final judgment coming to pass. 
It's only a question of time. So, if, 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 or since, 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 verse 9, then, verse 9, Peter says these past examples of judgment make two key points. The first is this, keep the unrighteous under punishment. Back at verse 4 again, the angels are currently in chains of gloomy darkness kept until the judgment. They're under judgment now. They're suffering for their sin now. The, the phrase here is kept under judgment. So it's not the final judgment he's talking about. They have been kept in a place of restraint ever since then. Let's just say that's pre-Abraham. That's 4,000 earth years. They've been kept under the place of judgment. Now, Peter's not bringing this up, but I'm bringing it up to make the point related to humans. <clears throat> Peter says the angels are in Tartarus. So however we think of that, it's not a good thing. So it's, it's dark, it's gloomy. Maybe it looks like the Valley of Hinnom. Maybe it's smoky and there's fires or maybe like a fire that's burned down low. But it's not a happy place. So that's angels. But if you say, well, what about ungodly? Remember those who don't have Christ's righteousness, the ungodly. What about them? So God cut off the ancient world in the flood. God, God cut off those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Are they like the angels kept under punishment now? And, and Scripture will go to Luke 16. By the way, if you were here for Sunday school, I was struck by how many of the things Bill was sharing there about death and resurrection in the future were were common with our lesson here as well. If you go to Luke 16, Jesus, He doesn't say it's a parable. He just starts and He just tells a story about two different men. And He says one is a rich man. He doesn't give him a name. And one is a very poor man, Lazarus. And they both die. And then this is what Jesus says about them. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment. He cries out and he has a conversation with Father Abraham. Hades is like the Old Testament word Sheol. It's the place of the dead. It's often translated hell. Jesus' point was the rich man without God's righteousness, the ungodly, when he died, he went to a place of judgment. He was kept in a place of judgment that isn't the final judgment. Hell is unfortunate it's such a plastic term that it doesn't necessarily if we use it you've got to define how you mean it so hell here would not be what we refer to as ultimate hell which in revelation we'll look at in just a minute is called the lake of fire and the second death this is not that it's apparently a temporary place it's a holding tank and those who die without christ's righteousness at death we say they go to hell, well, not technically, not in the sense of any place of final judgment, but a temporary place that's painful. It's not a place that you'd want to go either. Like the angels in Tartarus, this is not a place any of us want to go. So, fallen angels and unredeemed humans are being, and this is Peter's point, they're being right now, they're being kept under punishment until the final future judgment occurs. And that's the other point, verse 9, until the day of judgment. So I would think of it something like this. If, uh, if police were called to a scene, or maybe they were at the scene, and they witnessed uh, one person murder another person, they saw it, there's no question, and they arrest that person, and they put him in jail, they take him to the county jail, 
And they say, you get no bail, you're a danger. And you'll wait until you stand before the judge and there you will be sentenced. There you'll receive your judgment. That's sort of what is going on here. There's no thought that anyone kept under judgment today is innocent. They're not. They're guilty. Before a holy God, there's no thought of innocence. They simply haven't met the judge, which is Jesus. John's Gospel is quite clear on this. They haven't met Jesus and received, as their judge, to receive their final judgment. They're still being held. They don't have liberty. They might get three square meals a day in the county jail, but they can't come and go as they please. They're being held temporarily until they face a final judgment. A final judgment is coming. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15. I think in most people's minds, this is the scene that they might have in mind when they're thinking of of hell and final judgment. Peter's primary point on the front end is people are under judgment right now. Angels and humans are under judgment now, just not the final judgment. So in Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15, after Jesus has ruled the earth for a thousand years, it's been a blessed reign. Humanity is still the same, not only as today, but as back in the days of Noah, Satan's able to raise an army of rebels against God, and God cuts that short. And the earth age as we've known it is over. And before a new heaven and a new earth are inhabited by a redeemed creature, before the new creation starts in its fullness, Jesus wraps up this earth age. And He does so with this judgment that's spoken of in Revelation 20. And it says there, the devil, this is starting at verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A lake of fire, the second death, which is in any ultimate sense, this is hell. Do You remember too, it's important to point out Matthew 25, 41, Jesus was talking about this same thought when he said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Humans who end up in this same second death, this lake of fire, they're simply following their leader. Remember, Satan is called the God of this world. Jesus said to religious Jews who weren't saved, they didn't have God's righteousness, he said, your father is not Abraham, it's Satan. Humans who follow Satan end up where Satan ends up in the lake of fire. See this verse 11, I saw a great white throne, that's Jesus' throne, and him who was seated on it from him, the presence of the earth and sky fled away, no place was found for them. This is the great reckoning. Everyone stands there before Christ, there's no place to hide. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So this is like the criminal brought before the judge. The charges are read out. There's no question of innocence. Every charge is correct. This is what you've done. This is the punishment that fits the crime. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades... Those temporary places of judgment are now done away with because the permanent place of judgment has taken their place. They were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. So again, past judgments on sin reflect the reality of a future perfect and final judgment. There's a second half of this, which is... uh, a bit more encouraging than the first half. 
which is past deliverance confirms future deliverance. So Peter's really making two points. And this is the second. Verse 5 where he says, If Noah, again since, God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. God preserved him. You remember, Noah went through the flood, but he wasn't slain by the flood. Verse 7 God rescued righteous Lot. God rescued Lot. Remember, Lot lives in the city of Sodom that will be destroyed, and God takes him out before he brings judgment. Verse 9, so if Noah, if Lot, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So Peter's point again is this. God rescued Noah. God rescued Lot. You can count on God now and in the future, rescuing the righteous as well. The term rescue, let me give you a few other instances of the use of it. Uh, Matthew 6.13, Jesus gives the model prayer. Deliver us from evil is that same word. Rescue, draw out of danger, save. I like to think if someone was falling down a hole, maybe the abyss, and they throw their hand up and I have hold of their hand, I pull them out of the danger that they're in. That would be a good graphic illustration of that first thessalonians 1 10 the same word jesus delivers he rescues he draws out of danger he saves us from the wrath to come second timothy 4 17 and 18 paul says i was rescued by god in the past i was drawn out of danger and i will be rescued from every evil deed and brought safely into god's kingdom that's really the key thought Paul looks back on his life and says, God's rescued me from everything that's come before, and God will rescue me. Now remember, he is executed. So he's a martyr for his faith, but he says even there, God's rescuing me fully and finally until I'm home with Jesus in heaven. So even though I lose my life, I'm, I'm ultimately still rescued. God rescues the righteous from trials. Bill brought this up in Sunday school today as well. This is is typically translated either temptations, tests, or trials, and it can be used in a host of different ways. You've got to define your terms when you use that. Here's one of the ways it was used. Again, in Matthew 16, 6.13, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Lord, when I'm praying, keep me from those evils that would assail me, that would take me down. Uh, I'm praying to God, deliver me, keep me, save me from temptations. And then 1 Peter 4.12 Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery troubles when it comes upon you to test you, to test you, to tempt you, to try you. That's the same thing. So on one hand, Peter's using the term, you're going to be tried. And that's an indication that you have the Spirit of God. Don't worry about that. The other thought is, temptations that assail us, they can trip us up. We can fall down. They can harm us. So Lord, would you deliver us from the temptations that would harm us? Peter says there are trials coming in your life. Don't worry about that persecution primarily for Peter. So God will take you through the trials just as Noah went through the flood. So Noah and Lot are proof that God delivers us and saves us through and from the temptations of life. Temptations do assail us, and we may fail one trial or test after another, but none of the trials and temptations of life can remove us from the Father's love or Christ's saving work. That we will be saved through, even if we die in the midst of trials, we will be saved through them.
Those who are in right relationship with God through faith in Christ can count on God delivering them through the trials they're called to endure and from God's judgment on sin. When we close, we'll read a passage that talks about that. So guys, the big rocks, Peter says, are these. Um, Even people like false leaders, remember, because that's who he was talking about initially, false teachers. He says, guys, they don't get away with this. So God's given us, he's demonstrated his righteous judgment in the past, and that sometimes he cuts the wicked off prematurely in death, but not always. But when they die, they're, they're in a place of punishment before their final judgment anyway. If we look back through history, Hitler and Stalin, assuming they never came to faith, probably a safe assumption, though who knows? The thief on the cross is there. There is a reminder. But they would, they would be under God's punishment today. They're not sipping some drink someplace, having a lovely time, waiting judgment. It's a place of judgment today. That's what Peter says And there's a final judgment waiting for them. Those are the two big rocks. And the other rock is, and the righteous can count on God delivering them through the trials, the temptations, the tests of life. Those are the big rocks. I do want to, my third main point is this, and I say it just because I think in the day and the age we live in, it needs to be said. For Peter's point that past judgments guarantee future judgment, the past judgments need to be real. They need to have actually happened. If the first book of the Bible, and particularly for 2 Peter 2, the first 19 chapters, if they aren't historic realities, Peter's argument falls apart. So do Jesus's. Matthew 24 and Luke 17, Jesus uses Noah and his age as a precursor for the last days. Matthew 10 and 11 and Luke 10 and 17, Jesus uses Sodom as an example of a future judgment. 2 Peter 3, 5, which we'll get into later, Peter says that the flood of Genesis was a fact. The ESV says the fact of the flood. The, the word fact isn't actually in the Greek, but Peter simply says it happened. It is. It occurred. Like Paul, it's true. What I'm telling you is true and rational. There are many, and there are a growing number of evangelical scholars, pastors, and teachers that say that at least the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not historic. They say that they are poetic literature. They say that they are religious myth meant to make a point, but they do not record history. And guys, I just tell you, don't believe them. If, if, you, if those things didn't really happen, then Peter's argument is a house of cards because it presupposes that what he's saying from Genesis 6 6 and 19 actually happened. If it's myth, you can't count on it. And this is what happens. Guys, when you take part of the Bible and you say it isn't true, it affects, the ripple just keeps going. So if those chapters aren't true, you can't take Jesus at His word either because He thought they were true. And you can't take Paul for His word because he, He thinks the same thing. Romans 5, the whole argument of your sin and my sin in birth is based on Romans 5 that you're, just, you're in Adam and Adam was in you. If there's no Adam, don't worry about it. And Peter's arguments fall apart as well. So in the time and the place we live, popular, well-known, well-received evangelical scholars, professors, writers, pastors, speakers hold a view that lets the rest of the New Testament fall apart because they don't believe the early part of the Bible is history.
when it's really their true words and their rational words and you can count on them. Like Paul to Festus, Peter recorded for us true and rational words. Peter warns the ungodly that at death they'll enter a temporary judgment until they face Christ for their final sentence and punishment in hell with Satan. Peter comforts the godly no matter the depth or breadth of your trial and temptation in life. God preserves you, rescues, and delivers you to the ultimate safety, your eternal home with Christ. In the context of future judgment, Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing. Guys, we have no concept of the perfection of God's power in judgment. We, I don't think it can enter our mind. And I will tell you, anytime you talk on this topic, judgment for sin, the lake of fire, the second death, no hope ever. It's rather depressing. And I think so for this reason. I'm a human and I know my own sin. And I realize there's other humans, they're just like me. Maybe they're a little better, maybe they're a little worse, but I'm a sinner like them. And so there's a sense of affinity, that could be me. And there's a sense of sympathy. Lord, I wouldn't want that for anyone. And I'm, I'm all in on that. I, I get it. But this is the thing. When you and I see, we'll be at that throne, we'll be viewing these judgments Jesus makes on every life that comes through. And you know what we'll say with every sentence and every judgment He gives? We'll say, that was perfect. It's exact. You know, there's a text, I think it's Revelation 16, I think, when God has given mankind on the earth blood to drink because they shed blood, just like the violence in Genesis 6, the angel says they are worthy of it. The angel says the punishment is specific to the crime. So as much as we cringe at the thought of judgment because we know we're due judgment, we'll mention something else in a minute, uh, at the end of the day, the truth is when we've shed our fallenness and this humanity and this body, when we see God's judgments on the ungodly, all we will be able to say is, Lord, you've done everything right. Everything you've done is right. You couldn't improve on the perfection of your judgment. God calls us to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior while the breath of life remains before the reins of God's judgment fall. God calls us to repent and believe in and follow the Lord Jesus before the fires of His judgment are finally set. And this is the thing at the end of the day, and you can always come back to this. God is a loving God, right? And you say, absolutely. And the error is to say a loving God wouldn't judge. And you say, oh, that's where you're wrong. And this is why I know you're wrong. Because the perfection, the totality the fullness of God's love is on absolute display in Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of the world. Is God love? Absolutely. Is His love a little? Is it partial? It's immeasurable. The love of God fully on display, perfectly on display in Jesus dying for your sins and mine. But friends, the same crucifixion, the same death is absolute proof that God will judge sin in the future. And this is the thought. If God would judge His Son for your sin, the Son whom He loves, on, on what wavelength, on what r rational words would we assume He wouldn't judge the sinner 
who rejects the offer of grace in Christ. Jesus' death, crucifixion, and resurrection is the absolute, the total, full expression of the love of God and the justice of God that will be finally meted out in the end. That the righteous will be fully delivered and fully saved and the ungodly will be perfectly, perfectly judged. If you haven't already, take heed to Peter's Pentecost sermons. This is Acts 2, verse 40, and it's a great and it's a moving preaching Do you remember the Holy Spirit had come down and the guys are speaking languages they didn't learn? And Peter tells the Jews, you crucified the Lord of glory. And the passage says they're cut to the heart and they cry out, well, what should we do? They get it. And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus, be baptized to Him. And he closes with this, be saved from this perverse generation. Guys, We're perverse in our nature. And the world we live in is perverse and wicked. And Peter called out to those Jews, and we call out today, be saved from this wicked generation. We don't want to go the way of those who are dying in the flood. We don't want to go the way of those in Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't want to go the way of those angels. God preserves the godly who are the godly. Their only plea to God is, Christ is my plea, Father. Jesus is my satisfaction. Jesus is my plea. With that, would you rise? I want to close by reading from John 5, 21-24. It talks at least a little bit about this. And passing out of God's judgment into life. Let's read this together. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life.